Father, as we open up your word, I pray that your spirit might teach us and open up our hearts. Cause us, Lord, to comprehend and to embrace by faith that which you have taught us. Open our eyes that we might behold wondrous things from your holy law. We pray in the wonderful name of Jesus, our Savior, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Well, this past Monday, Elizabeth Elliot passed away. She was a great missionary, married to Jim, who was one of the five martyrs way back in January 1956 in Ecuador. Five guys were trying to take the gospel to a group of people who had never heard of Christ. One of those missionaries was our own, Roger Udarian, and we still, still support his wife, Barb. Elizabeth stayed in that tribal setting with her little daughter, Valerie, and along with Rachel Saint, brought the gospel to people who so desperately needed to hear about Christ. And they formed a church as people came to Christ. And they've gone all over the world giving testimony of the amazing grace of God. Elizabeth continued to write. She made Jim famous, really all five of those missionaries famous, by writing the book Through Gates of Splendor. Have you ever heard of that? Uh, it is certainly one of the greatest missionary books ever written. And it was, uh, it was recognized as one of the most inspirational books, top five written in the 20th century. She then wrote Jim's biography under the shadow of the Almighty, heavily relying upon his journals, which were later in full published through her skillful editing. She continued to speak and lecture and write. And for 13 years, she had a radio program called Gateway to Joy. You can still hear it on the Internet, and it's worth listening to. But this is what I wanted to share with you. Every time... She had a radio broadcast. She started out with these amazing words. You are loved with an everlasting love. That's what the Bible says. And underneath are the everlasting arms. And then she'd go into her study. It wasn't necessarily connected to the love of God because she taught on so many different things, but that's how she started every program. Why? She was cognizant of the fact that believers are forgetful people that we have spiritual amnesia, that we often fail to recall the good things God has done for us, and we forget that God loves us. We believe the lie that we are an unloved person, that we don't have anyone who really cares for us. And, and we may sense that is true in the physical world, although it probably is not, but it is not true in the real world where God loves us with an everlasting love. It will never die, and it's a complete, perfect love. It will be impossible for you to love anyone effectively until you know that you are loved personally. Read Paul's logic in Ephesians chapter 5 when he tells the church to love like God's love because you are dearly loved children. You cannot love until you are loved. And you are loved. So understand it. Embrace it. 
And I don't know of any portion of Scripture to go to that will highlight the wonderful things that God has done for us. And there are many places, but I don't know any better than Psalm 103 that starts out listing the wonderful benefits of God's amazing grace. So turn in your Bibles to Psalm 103. We'll not be able to get through the entire psalm today. That's why, Lord willing, we plan to work through it a little further next week. But John Stott has widely, wisely analyzed this psalm by saying it's like three concentric circles. The first circle is small and intimate. It's personal praise, the first five verses. And then the circle gets a little larger, verse 6 through verse 19. In that day, it was encouraging Israel to praise God, the community of faith in the Old Testament. We would see that as the church now praising God, the community of faith in the New Testament. So it goes from personal to community. The subject is still praising God. And then it ends in the largest of all circles, universal praise. Let everyone praise the Lord. Verse 20 through verse 22. So personal, community, and universal. And like the Psalm 100 that ends the book of Psalms, so this psalm focuses on all of us praising all of God, who He is, what He has done. Everything in us praising everything that is in him. And that's a praise that should keep us going for a lifetime. It's interesting when you look at this particular psalm that there is no request in the entire psalm. Isn't that interesting? Have you ever prayed without asking God for something? You know, that's pretty hard to do. And yet we should praise God sometimes merely to uh, to pray to God, simply to praise Him, to adore Him, to exalt Him, instead of trying to get something from Him. Do your children ever come and have a lengthy conversation with you without asking you for something? We get used to doing that as kids, and so we just project that then upon our Heavenly Father, and we think that He is just there to give us what we want or to give us what we need. No request in this entire psalm. But someone has counted 17 reasons or arguments to motivate us to praise. We sang a moment ago 10,000 reasons. Here's 17, part of that list. Psalmist David is, is acknowledging that we not only are forgetful people, even when we remember what we're supposed to do, we're often sluggish in doing it. So it's like this psalm is written to rouse us to action, to rouse his own soul. And that's who he's speaking to. He's kind of talking to himself in the beginning. Hey, soul, get serious about praising God. It's interesting, when you read the book of Deuteronomy, 14 times Moses uses the word remember. 
Now, it's a review of the law of God, so you would expect that to some degree, but it's seen over and over and over again. For instance, he says in Deuteronomy 8.10, when you have eaten and are satisfied in the land that I'm giving you, praise the Lord your God. And be careful once you're satisfied that you do not forget the Lord your God by failing to keep his commandments. Deuteronomy 8 and verse 10. And that's what happens. God gives us so many blessings, we begin to take them for granted, right? And we've got to step back and count our many blessings. And we will be surprised, not just what the Lord has done, we will be surprised at the change that makes in us. When we become a people focused on who God is and his blessings, instead of on what we don't have. It's an amazing psalm. And my unashamed purpose this morning is that you and I will increase the quality and regularity of our praise to Almighty God, who is good. Let's look at Psalm 103, verse 1. Praise the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, praise his holy name. You know, some translations have the word bless. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Have you ever thought about that? We know God blesses us, but how do we bless God? How do I bless God? To bless someone is to fill them with delight. Did you know that when you praise God, when you show gratitude to God and thanks to Him, you are filling His soul with joy. Now, I don't totally understand that because God's perfect and not devoid. He lacks nothing. But somehow you give Him joy and delight. You bless Him. We bless other people when we give to them. Why not bless God by giving Him praise? So he says, bless the Lord, O my soul. You know, you want to know what your soul is? All my inmost being. It's the real you within. It's your intellect. It's your emotions. It's your will. Your thinking. Your feeling. Your choosing. It's all that makes real personality. It's who you are inside. Everything that is in you. With all your heart and soul and mind and strength. Give praise to God. It's a soulish praise. He says, praise his holy name. Verse 2, praise the Lord, O my soul, repeats it, and forget not all his benefits. Notice in verse 1, we praise him for his character before we get to verse 2, praising him for his benefits. I praise your name. The name of God stands symbolic for all the attributes of God. I praise your holy name. I praise your loving name. I praise your merciful name. I praise your eternal name. I praise your righteous name, your just name. On and on you can go with the attributes of God. It's all comprised in the name. I praise your holy name. Get excited about the character of God. Secondly, I praise you for all the benefits that you give to me. This is why it's so personal. 
And we don't have time to look at all 17, but let's look at five this morning rather quickly. The first benefit, verse three. He forgives all your sins. That is first in order and first in importance. Because without forgiveness, every other blessing is neutered. Unless you know that God has forgiven you and you have a real relationship with Him, you will not enjoy life. And every joy that comes your way is reduced because you do not know the God who gives it and you're not in a proper relationship with Him to praise Him for it. Nor do you have the spiritual capacity to enjoy it unless you're first forgiven. That's where it starts. He forgives all your sins. The word sin here means twisted or distorted. Remember we mentioned last week, or maybe it was two weeks ago, that in the Hebrew language there are five different words for sin. This one means twisted, distorted, or really wicked. And God forgives all my wicked thoughts and wicked deeds. And underscore that little word, all. That's really important. How comforting would it be if you read the scripture, he forgives most of your sins. <laughs> you'd go to prayer, wouldn't you? And you'd confess your sin, and about halfway through you'd say, ah, I wonder if this is one of the unforgivable ones or forgivable ones. And we'd become psychotic. But the scripture tells us he forgives all of our sins. That's a divine gift. If we confess our sins, He is character. He is faithful and just to forgive our sins. He's promised to do so, and He'll, be, he'll honor His word. And to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. My deeds are twisted and wicked and rebellious and sinful. Marvelous grace of our loving Lord. Grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. It exceeds in character and it exceeds in quantity. His grace is greater in every category. And that's why you and I can be forgiven. He forgives all of our sins. I think it's helpful to remember that the one we offended is the one who forgives. It's the God of heaven whom we've rebelled against. It's the God of heaven that we have slandered and blasphemed and ignored. It's the God of heaven who forgives our sin. And that is no little thing. Sir Walter Scott said that he had a hard time understanding grasping, believing the Sermon on the Mount, especially that part that said, love your enemies and forgive those who persecute you. Because he had, been, he had been persecuted, spent time in the Tower of London. He said he couldn't quite understand it until one day he was walking along and he saw a stray dog that was threatening. And so he picked up a stone, a rather large stone, and it was his purpose to throw it at the dog to scare him. But you know, when you and I try to hit something, we usually miss. When we try to miss, we usually hit it. And he hit the dog in the leg. And the stone was sizable enough that he thought 
the leg was broken. Immediately the dog began to whine and limp. And then the dog limped up to him and licked the hand that threw the stone. And he said that was the greatest sermon on the mount he ever saw. And when we praise God for forgiveness of sins, understand he is the one who forgave us. We are the ones who threw the stones. That is mercy. It's a divine, amazing gift. And by the way, it's not that he forgave our sins. It's present tense. He forgives and continues to do so. There's a great story of a a mom who's driving through heavy rain in the middle of town, little boy on the front seat. She's taking extra precautions, you know, so as not to slip because of the bad conditions, and she's concentrating her driving. Suddenly, her seven-year-old son, Matthew, who's sitting there in his comfortable position in the front seat, says, Mom, I'm thinking about something. Now, when a seven-year-old ponders like that, you can... You're usually shocked at what comes out after that, the amazing insight of a seven-year-old. But this is what the little boy said. He said, the rain is like sin, and the wipers are like God wiping our sin away. (laughs) When your little boy comes up with theology like that, it will reduce you to tears, won't it? And her eyes swelled up with tears. When she got her composure, she said, Matthew, that's good. That's very good. And she said, and did you notice that it keeps raining? He said, yes. We keep sinning, and God keeps wiping it away. (laughs) That is a great picture of grace. And the mom said, I can never look at my wipers in the car again without thinking of the great forgiveness of God. He forgives you. Look in that same verse. It says, and he heals all of your diseases. Now, the phrases are very similar. They're in the same verse, but God handles them quite differently. That is, sin and disease. This could refer to spiritual sickness, but I think it's talking about physical sickness. And it says that God heals all our diseases. And that's true. God is able to heal every disease, but he's not obligated to do so. And there is a difference. When we confess our sin, he immediately forgives. When we ask for healing, it's not always immediate. Sometimes it comes out differently than what we expect. And sometimes our suffering is for his glory and our good. I always think of Johnny Erickson Tata when I think of someone who suffers for the glory of God. You know her story? A young gal of 16, bright promise and future ahead of her, dove into the Chesapeake Bay and broke her neck and became a quadriplegic. She was a Christian, and she prayed for God to heal, and he didn't answer. And so she got bitter, and then she got right with God. She's now 65 or in that ballpark, and she has been used of God more effectively from her chair as a quadriplegic than she would have been had her body been whole. Read her books. Listen to her radio broadcast. Amazing insight in the scriptures. Wow. 
He is able to heal, but he's not obligated to heal our every situation. And sometimes suffering is for his glory. I hope that you and I can understand and develop a theology between the one that says, God will heal you no matter what your sickness. You pray, God must heal. And if he doesn't heal you, it's your lack of faith. That is so unbiblical. You and I, afraid of some of the supernatural stuff, often resort to this position way over here that I'm not even going to pray for healing because God rarely does it. I've got a close acquaintance who says that she no longer believes in God because she prayed for healing and it never happened. And you and I are afraid to pray because we're afraid to, get, to be disappointed. We need this middle position that says God is able to heal and we need to come boldly to the throne of grace and ask for healing. Beseech him. Seek him. And in every prayer say, not my will, but what? Thine be done. That's the biblical position. But you know, God's healed a lot of people in this room from various diseases, and it's been supernatural. A lady told me last week after the service of some amazing healing that God performed in answer to prayer. Healing that astounds the medical community. He heals all of your diseases. Let's go on to the next one, the third one. Notice verse 4 says that he redeems your life from the pit. Now, there is the sense of redemption in the spiritual world where we are saved from the pit in the eternal world, the lake of fire, and that is true, but I don't think that's what David is after. Remember, David is writing this out of his own experience, and often David was rescued from physical death. The word pit here comes from the Hebrew word sheol, which means the grave. God rescues us from a premature death. Doesn't always do that, but he often does that. How many of you, and I'm not going to call on you, so don't be afraid to raise your hand. How many of you in your past experience at some point in life, you have been rescued from imminent death, maybe an accident or healed from a disease. God saved you from dying. You were almost there, but he rescued you. Let me see by show of hands. Okay. In all of our services, quite a few. The rest of you, the rest of us, should have put up our hands because God has done it for us too. We just can't remember it. God is so good at pulling this off that we often don't even notice. Have you ever fell asleep at the wheel driving? God in eternity might say to you, you know how many things I had to do, how many angels I had to send, how many accidents I caused you to avoid during that little sleep of yours? Didn't even know it. Yeah, there's a lot we don't know. He rescues our soul, our, our life, our body from early death. That's amazing grace. Look at the fourth thing. This is also verse 4. He crowns you with love and compassion. David knew about crowns. He wore a kingly crown. They discovered the crown of King Philip of Macedonia. He is the father of Alexander the Great. His tomb was uncovered, oh, about 60 or 70 years ago. It had never been plundered by grave robbers. This is hundreds of years before Christ. 
a virgin tomb discovered, and his royal crown, you can see it on the internet, is there for display, the crown of King Philip. It's an amazing thing. And David had a crown similar to that, beaten out of gold, fashioned by skillful artisans. But David said, you know, my favorite crown is the one God gives me. It's love and compassion. We're crowned, which means we're children of the king. We're kids of royalty. And it's not the crown of merit. It's the crown of mercy. It's the crown of God's love that will never leave us and God's compassion that always surrounds us. In fact, this theme is so exciting to David. Look at verse 8. He just has to bring it up again. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love. There it is again, love and compassion. Do you realize that God crowns you every day with his love and every day with his compassion? Get a hold of that. And then he satisfies you. It's not that he merely overcomes your disease and rescues you from death. He satisfies you. He satisfies your desires with good things. Now, I'm, I don't know Hebrew, so I don't understand that there is a real problem in this verse, but scholars tell me that there is a word here that is really tough to translate. In the NIV, it's desires. If you have the old King James, it's probably the word mouth. He satisfies your mouth with good things. Desires and mouth. The Hebrew word is used 13 times in the Old Testament. Every other time it's translated jewelry or ornament. That doesn't quite fit in the text. He satisfies your jewelry. You say, well, what does that mean? Well, sometimes the author would use an item for what it represented. And jewelry represents something costly or valuable and something that endures. And that's why some translations, like the New Revised Standard Translation, has it this way, he satisfies you with good things for all your life. So they get from that one word, jewelry that lasts forever, the concept of all your life. Whatever it is exactly, the point is God satisfies us with those things that really satisfy the soul. The world can sometimes placate but it can never truly satisfy. The world can amuse. Only God can bring deep joy. Those who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, those who walk with him, who trust him, their soul is satisfied. What does that mean? All your desires are fulfilled. You're content and happy. There's no longing unmet. And he satisfies your very inner being. That part that should be praising him in verse 1 is the part that he satisfies to its depths in verse 5. Your soul is satisfied. How many Christians live deeply satisfied lives? Are you deeply satisfied? I really think one of the reasons the world is not attracted to Christianity is because Christians are not that attractive. 
I mean, the joy is gone. And if there is no joy to compel the world to listen, why would they? And it's up to us to remember his benefits and live in light of those benefits so that the testimony that we portray to a lost and dying and watching world is that God satisfies to the hilt doesn't mean that my life is perfect. It doesn't mean that I don't have trials and problems. It doesn't mean that my heart sometimes is overcome with grief. What it means is that God satisfies my soul. We're privileged to live like a king and we're satisfied to be totally content. Look at, he gives an illustration in verse 5. When you are satisfied with the good things of God, your youth will be renewed like the eagles. What does that mean? Well, it could mean that uh, the eagles, who go through an annual molting process, right after the breeding season, they lose the old feathers and gain new plumage. It could mean, like the eagle is reborn, so we are renewed and reborn. Possible? But I think the better translation is this. As an eagle displays strength and vigor, so you will be infused with the same. David is writing this as an older man who's looking back at all that God has done for him. He can look back at being forgiven of sin. What sin? Well, we remember the sin with Bathsheba, don't we? Psalm 32, Psalm 51. He was often rescued from near death. Psalm 56, Psalm 116, and many others. He was crowned literally as king, and God has satisfied his soul. I think the emphasis even here is that it's on strength and vigor. That God somehow infuses in us, even in our older age, the ability to the ability to live like we're young with the energy and excitement of a young person. God will satisfy your desires with good things all of your days so that you'll be like an eagle, vigorous and filled with strength. Isaiah 40, those who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength which means they'll soar on eagles' wings, run not be weary, walk not faint. That's the blessing of God. Do you remember the book of Esther when King Artaxerxes couldn't sleep one night? And so he called people, he called one of his servants and said, bring the book of the chronicles of my reign and all of my deeds. It sounds like boring reading for an insomniac, but read some history to me. And they began to read. And they read the story of when Mordecai had thwarted an assassination attempt on King Artaxerxes. And the king said, what did we do to this man to honor and recognize him? And the scribe said, nothing. <laughs> and the king said, immediately, I want you to honor Mordecai. And of course, that's in the middle of the story with Haman and the way that God works that out is simply amazing. But here's someone who read in the book 
of good deeds done that were never recognized and said, immediately, I need to right the wrong. And so I say to you, O church of God, we need to right the wrong immediately. God has been so good to us and blessed us with blessings that are beyond our comprehension like these five, and there are more. And we ought to step back and say, oh, my soul, everything that is within me, I better praise his holy name every day of my life. My life should be characterized by gratitude and thanksgiving. Pastor Jack Hinton was on a short-term missionary trip to the island of Tobago. And he was leading a worship service. He was actually leading the singing in a leper colony. And what song leaders often do, either when they don't have a plan or they want people to be involved, they'll say, how about favorites? Who's a favorite that you would like for us to sing? And up to that point, a lady had had her back turned to him throughout the whole service, and she turned and looked at Jack, and he said, that was the most horrible face I had ever encountered. Leprosy had eaten away her ears and her nose and a better part of her face. All her fingers were gone from her hand. And she raised up that hand without fingers and said, can we sing Count Your Many Blessings? <laughs> and Jack couldn't continue the service. He just left. Later on, a friend said to him, I bet you'll never sing that song again. He said, no, I'll sing it again, but I'll never sing it the same way again. Because de someone demonstrated gratitude when there appeared to be little reason for it. How much more so we who have all the reasons in the world and we're silent. Wow. I had the chance to be in London recently and one night with some dear friends of ours, we were at Sir Albert Hall listening to a praise concert and listening to 5,000 people sing 10,000 reasons like we sang just a moment ago, and it was stirring. And I was reduced to tears. And when I heard that song this morning, I thought of thousands of voices lifted up to praise the God of heaven who is so good to us, and what an impact that has on the world if we would but praise him with all of our soul. Or to put it this way, with all that you are, praise all that he is. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this reminder. We are such a forgetful people. And even when we're aware of truth, we're often sluggish to apply that truth to our lives. So this morning, Lord, I pray that you will raise us up not only those who are in the auditorium this morning, the worship center, but those who are listening on the internet, those who will hear this sermon later on a CD. Raise all of us up to be children of the King who know that they're crowned with love and compassion, forgiven, rescued, healed. And because of that, we will praise you with every fiber of our being, 
every day of our lives. In Jesus' name.